And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a subject that you can get in on. In the past, we have sometimes gotten guests or people asking questions who've emailed me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. But even if you don't want to be on the show, we invite you to visit with us during the week. The best way to do that right now is at Fromers.com, which is our website. We put in a lot of love and effort into that. You'll find all of the latest news, a lot of fun cultural tidbits, a lot of information on history and cuisine and much more. So visit us at Fromers.com and also don't forget to follow us on social media. You'll find the word Fromers, that's us, at Pinterest, at Instagram, at Facebook, and on Twitter. So, it's a fun day today because we have a very special guest on the line for the start of the show. His name is Mikkel Olland. He is the author of a seminal book called Sweat that came out a long time ago but is now inspiring a new documentary TV series. And Mikkel, we're reaching you in Norway, right? Yes, you are. It's a beautiful day here in Norway. So I got to ask, I know you are, you have Norwegian citizenship as well as U.S. citizenship. Is that how you originally got interested in, well, uh, one of the words for them is saunas, but there are also other words for what you write about? Yeah, Pauline, it, it is, it kind of is in my DNA and it comes from my my Norwegian father, and um, he grew up uh, taking in Norway what they call the badstua. Badstua is a is another word for for the sauna, which is a basically a Finnish word. And what we're talking about are baths that you go in and you sit down and you sweat, and hence the title of my book, Sweat. And right. my father, of course, being Norwegian, uh, passed that uh, the love of of a hot heated room uh, where you sit and sweat onto me. Now, is that type of hot heated room, I mean, I know it's in Japan, uh, and I know it's in uh, Scandinavia, but do you find that type of bathing in other parts of the world? Pauline, this is this is what was so thrilling for me um, as a young man to to explore my own culture first of all, and then to find out that we were not we were not at all alone, and that most cultures around the world have some form of the sweat bath, be it the the Finnish sauna or the Russian banya or the. Mm-hmm. Islamic hammam. Uh, all over the world, there seems that uh, this is kind of almost an innate uh, desire to heat your body and sweat. And I discovered this. I connected all the dots together and found out that this was indeed a worldwide phenomenon. 
And so you use that kind of as a pilgrimage of sorts to, to discover how different cultures do this activity differently and the same, right? I spent three years uh, traveling around the world visiting Bav. Um, it was a really hard job, but, you know, somebody had to do it, Pauline. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, yeah. It, so it, it was it was quite a, um, an amazing adventure, pilgrimage, as you call it. Uh, you know, I sampled baths. Uh, some people go around the world sampling food and other various things. I, I sampled baths and it was a, an amazing experience. And I, I was so uh, I felt so lucky to have that opportunity. Now, I know people are often naked in baths. Were you welcome everywhere? I mean, I would think that there might be shyness or different cultural traditions that might not let an outsider into a bathing situation, or am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It, the baths themselves, they share the common, the common um, uh, uh, underlying theme of the sweat bath is, is a heated a bath where you go in with hot air. But then then from then on, you have so many cultural variations on how you, how the architecture of the bath itself, how you go about taking the bath, whether you have clothes on or not. In some cultures, uh, for, obviously in the Islamic cultures, you're, you know, you're, you're fully, you, you have towels around you. You don't really expose your, your body in the bath. Uh, you go to some countries like Germany, and if you go in the, uh, if you go into a German sauna, with clothes on or with a bathing suit or with a towel, you will basically be shamed to take them, take everything off because that's <laughs> where you, that's a culture where they really like to be naked. Right. Actually, uh, th there was a meme that just went viral recently of a man who was bathing naked in a German park and a boar somehow grabbed the bag that had his laptop in it. I'm not sure if you saw that, but I think the whole world now knows how much the Germans love to be naked because of that silly picture. Anyway. Yeah, you go to parks, go to parks in Munich, and and you find people uh, bathing naked. But the sauna, the place uh, where people bathe, they, they just take off all their clothes. They have no fear of being naked. So, is there a scientific reason why people are so drawn to sweating? Does it actually make the body healthier? Well, this is what I like to say about about the bath. It, 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 Give me some kind of a human activity that under one roof that satisfies the social, the physical, and the spiritual. And you'll find it's a very rare human activity that does all three. And that, in fact, what happens when you go into a sauna or a sweat bath is you, you're social oftentimes, you're with other people, um, and you're also physically uh, cleansing your body. It's a very healthy activity uh, that's been shown over and over again that heating your body and, and sweating out uh, toxins and poisons is very good for you. And then also there's this, I call it spiritual, I'm not sure that's the right word, but it, it, there's a sense of, of connectedness that happens when you're in the, in the, in the heat and you're, you're oftentimes without clothes or you know, you're, you're, you're basically connecting to nature. So you have this very powerful three things happening at once that gives a lot of the power to the bath. We're speaking with Mikkel Aland, who is the author of a seminal work called Sweat, which is now being turned into a TV series. And for that TV series, you went to different parts of the world with local guides 
to explore the bathing culture. Let's go through a couple of those. Tell us about the bathing culture in Japan. And I, I want to ask you about tattoos. We could start with that and we'll go into other parts of the culture there. Oh, tattoos. Yeah. I'm, in Japan, they, uh, if you have a tattoo, uh, you're oftentimes associated with the Yakuza, which is like a, the mafia. And so the kind of the, the, the established um, places, bathhouses, uh, see you walking with a tattoo, they'll probably reject you because mm. you're, you're associated with this, you know, the underworld. So it's, it's, it's a funny thing. They're a little more, uh, they're not quite as strict with, with foreigners, but it is, it definitely is a cultural thing. Japan is probably one of the greatest bathing cultures in the world. The Japanese just love to bathe. And probably part of the reason is there's hot springs all over Japan. So the hot spring is, is, a, is a very easy way to, you know, to stay clean. Sure. Uh, but, but the Japanese have also embraced the Finnish sauna. Uh, there's a huge revival now of interest in sweat bathing in Japan because they, not only have they discovered the Finnish style of sweat bathing, but they have discovered their own uh, style, of, uh, their own ancient um, type of sweat bath. So the Japanese are they, I just I admire them so much because they really have got the bathing culture down. Now in Japan, I, I went and visited my daughter when she was living there for a couple of months and we went to a bath. In the baths, the genders were kept separated. That seems to be the thing in Japan. Is that the norm in most places? That's a really good question. It, it, there's variations in every culture, but I would say, ex with the German exception, again, the Germans <laughs> are the exceptions there. Um, there's there's the co-ed bathing. Uh, it is more rare, um, unless you get into sub-social groups where, you know, friends get together, uh, you know, small parties, things like that. But in the public baths themselves, most public baths, most places in the world are segregated. Now, in most pl pl places, are the baths public or private? Ooh, another great question. Um, well, they're they're both. I mean, and there are some places where public bathing is is just more part of the culture. Getting back to Germany, public bathing. Uh, I think it's required if you build a if you build a swimming hall or any kind of sports uh, facility, you have to have a sauna, uh, and that's a public sauna. Anybody can go into it. So Germany has a really strong public bathing culture, as does Japan. You get up here into the north, where I am, in, in, in Norway and, and, and Sweden and Finland, they're more kind of the private, uh, you know, smaller, smaller saunas, sweat baths, bastus, and and you know the public baths are, are here. There's no question about it, especially in the cities. But, but a lot of private uh, baths. Interesting. In well, we have to take our first break, but don't turn that dial. We'll be talking more with Mikkel Aland after these messages. We're going to hear about his book, Sweat. We'll hear about the upcoming TV series and much more. Be right back.
You are listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer. My dad, Arthur Fromer, is also on the line. And all the way from Norway, we speak with Mikkel Holland, who is the author of a wonderful book with gorgeous photos in it called Sweat. That book is now being turned into a TV series. And I know you kind of got hit by coronavirus, right, Mikkel? Uh, you've had to stop filling. Well, you didn't. I'm not oh, saying you got, you got the virus, but what's happened to the TV series? Oh, uh, we, we, um, okay. So the TV series, it's a documentary series. It's based on my book, Sweat, which, as you said, was written a long time ago, back in the 70s. Um, and, and I've had this, this amazing uh, stroke of luck to have a, a, a producer wanting to turn the book into a series. And so three years ago, we started filming uh, in Finland. We were recreating my career odyssey around the world uh, for the original SWAT. So we filmed in Finland, we filmed in Russia, we filmed in Germany, we filmed in Japan, we filmed in Turkey. We've got seven episodes in the can, and we had two more episodes that were scheduled to shoot, and the virus hit. So we're, we're uh, basically on hold now for, for the Baltic area, where we're going to do Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, and then Mexico. So we're, we're kind of on hold on those, but we have seven episodes that are shot, and they're in, being in post-production right now, and hopefully we'll get those out. And it's been just an amazing, talk about just a fantastic adventure to be able to go back and, and, and go back to all these places that I visited 40 years ago. And wow. And now in search of the perfect sweat. So, so this has just been uh, such a, such an amazing um, adventure for me. Can people see online the 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 sex segments that are already finished? Unfortunately, no. We're gonna. It'll no. be released as a as a streaming a either on Netflix or Amazon. We're talking to various vendors right now, various distributors. Uh, you can go to Perfect Sweat Series and see our trailer if you want. It's a cool maybe. trailer. I love the trailer. Yeah. All <laughs> yeah, right. we got that. <laughs> For anybody tuning in late, we're speaking with Mikkel Oland, the author of the book Sweat, and uh, hopefully also the star of a new series with the same name, which will be out once once they can get back into production on it. Now, when you were doing your original research, you, you talked in the first segment about how sweating or these sweat areas can be a spiritual uh, place, too. Did you go to any Native American sweat lodges? And were, are people welcome to do that? Well, I was, yes, I was very, I did go, and I, I was very lucky. Um, for Native Americans, the sweat lodge itself, which is a, a form of the sweat bath, which is, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a different form, but it's, it's the same idea. But what happens with the Native Americans is that they have ritualized it so that when you go in, Right before I went into one of the sweat lodges with the Navajo medicine man, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, now, act like you would when you enter a white man's church with respect. And there was, wow. there was, it, there's so much there's so much around the, 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 the chanting and the and, and the ritualization of that of the bath taking um, that is so special to Native Americans. So, you have I, I, you know, very careful about not getting into the cultural uh, you know, side of things and taking away from them anything that's theirs. Um, right. But it is really a magical, spiritual place for Native Americans. 
And where, if somebody who's listening to this radio show right now, if they wanted to experience this, what state would they go to and who would they contact? How would they do this? Okay, so so uh, but public baths, unfortunately, most of them have been Ah, sigh. Uh, uh, oh, I'm talking the about the Native American sweat lodges, not just a bath. Ah, uh, that's that's something else. That's really, uh, if you could Google it, there are places in Canada that welcome huh. um, that welcome non-Native people. Uh, I've seen again. This is one of those really sensitive issues sure. where you, you, it's not like it's not like you're going into just any old place it's a yeah uh, i I'm, I'm very careful when i talk about sweat lodge because it okay. is such a sensitive subject for native americans but sure. you can google it in your area and, and see if there's any any ceremonies that you might be able to be uh, participating now in. from the spiritual to the visual what makes some of these places of sweat so famous and so beloved are how gorgeous they are. I'm thinking of the baths in Budapest uh, as mm. one example. Mm. Can you, can you, for any of our listeners who don't know about those, can you tell a little bit about those and then tell us about some of the other really beautiful ones around the world? Wow! So the Gelber Baths, there, there's a lot of uh, the, the, the old uh, the old style that inspired, oftentimes by the Roman and Greek culture, which probably had some of the most amazing bath houses you've ever seen. The, the giant Roman thermae, for example, that the Romans took wherever they went. The beautiful vaulted ceilings. The architecture was stunning. They could hold up to three thousand bathers. So we're wow. talking about a bathing culture that just rivals anything we've seen today. Um, yeah, there's, there's the, the thing about the bath itself, and this is what we get into in, in the series, is they, you can have the most simple rudimentary bath, which is just a kind of a, a tent with some hot rocks in it, and then you can go off into these extraordinarily beautiful architectural designs um, all over the world that you have the you have this whole range. Uh, it, it, what I found, Pauline, when I was doing Doing the, the original uh, study and what I'm d doing now uh, is it's very much like uh, going around the world and tasting different foods. There's just huh. so much variety out there with each within each culture, and it's uh, it, it's just never ending variety and in, in, in the architecture as well. Yeah, well, I know you as a photographer. Did you have to get special permission to photograph uh, in many of these places? Ooh. Of course. I mean, we're talking about a very private thing, bathing. So, yeah, yeah we've, we've, we've approached it very carefully with a lot of sensitivity. And everybody that's in our show has, has agreed to be in the show. And, uh, yeah, we're that's very important, privacy. Well, I can't wait to see the show. For anybody tuning in late, we have been speaking with Mikkel Olland, the author of a fabulous book called Sweat, which will soon, very soon, fingers crossed, be a, a fabulous uh, vid, uh, video series uh, streaming to you on some platform. Mikkel, thank you so much for appearing on The Travel Show. Pauline, it's been my pleasure. I just love talking to you.
And welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. Moving on, we have Elizabeth Kwok Hefferin on the line. She is the author, we are very proud to say, of Fromer's Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Elizabeth. Nice to speak with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So let's pretend that nobody has ever heard about Yellowstone. What would you say to a visitor from another planet <laughs> who was coming to our country and wanted to see what I think is its greatest national park? What would you say? What makes it so unique? Well, you're right. It, it really is unique among all the national parks, I think, probably in the world, but particularly here in North America. Um, Yellowstone, first of all, is one of the largest parks we have. It's not the largest, but it's, um, you know, almost 3,500 square miles. Wow. So there's a lot to see and a lot of variety. Um, I, and the two, I think there are two things that really set Yellowstone apart. Uh, one is its geothermal activity. So there's all kinds of um, geysers and hot springs and steam vents and mud pots. And really the earth is kind of just alive there. And you can see evidence of, you know, the, the giant plumbing system under the ground that we have bubbling up to life, you know, regularly. And it's, it's a spectacular sight to see. Um, and then I think the other major thing that sets it apart is just the sheer variety um, and, you know, the stellar quality of the wildlife there. You've mm. really got everything from grizzly bears to wolves to bison to bald eagles to bighorn sheep and mountain lions and hundreds of other animals that you can see there in a, a concentration that is hard to find elsewhere. Well, let's let's unpack those two statements. For the geysers and the bubbling mud pots and the fumaroles and all of that, there, I've always, I always hear people talking about Yellowstone as if it's going to cause the end of the world. That, <laughs> that the top of it is almost like a giant volcano that's unlike any other place on Earth except, I believe, Iceland. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's a volcanic caldera, right? What does that mean? Well, yeah, it, it is actually right on top of a volcano. It's, uh, it's what's known as a supervolcano. So it mm. just basically means a really, really giant one. Um, and you won't see, you know, it's it, it's not like a mountaintop like you when you picture a volcano. It's it's so big that kind of most of the park is that caldera, kind of the inside top of the volcano. Hmm. And basically, that means that the the magma is much closer to the Earth's surface under Yellowstone, and so you've got this tremendous amount of heat coming up, and that is what's heating all the the groundwater and fueling all of these kind of spectacular uh, displays of hydrothermal hydrothermal power. Um, but it's not, it's probably not going to cause the end of the world. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it has erupted in the past. Um, the most recent eruption was 640,000 years ago. Wow. But it's also, it's very well studied. <laughs> there are a lot of um, scientists whose job it is to monitor this volcano. So I, I doubt that it's something that visitors need to worry about. So it's this superheated water that causes the geysers to erupt, some on a schedule like Old Faithful. Uh, but there are people, I love this, when I was in Yellowstone, the park rangers call them geyser gazers, people who go deep into the park just to wait and see the ones that don't erupt that often. If you are going to Yellowstone, how do you make sure you get to see as many eruptions as possible? 
Well, if you want a sure thing, um, I, I think there are six uh, geysers that the Park Service will publish its schedule for. So you can, you know, go to any visitor center or I think there's also a call in line you can and check and they'll huh. say, OK, it's, you know, and it's usually within, I want to say, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. Wow. Um, not always, but especially something like Old Faithful. It's Old got a Faithful name for is a reason. <laughs> roughly every hour, right? Or, or am I remembering it that is. wrong? I think it's about every hour. Wow. Yeah. So that's a pretty sure bet if you go to one of those six predicted geysers. Um, and then there are some other ones that, you know, you just kind of have to get lucky for. Mm-hmm. Um, the the one that that is probably the biggest prize to see is um, Steamboat Geyser, which was kind of, it was dormant for years. And I believe it's the, it might be the tallest geyser in the world. It definitely is the tallest geyser in the park. And um, it just was quiet for decades and then really recently has started uh, erupting again so some lucky people caught it um i think once or twice in the past couple of years so you know sometimes you get really lucky but if if that's not your fate then you can definitely um, check a schedule when you're when you say the tallest geyser you mean the how high the water shoots up yes exactly and and how high does it shoot up there do you know Several hundred feet. I don't know the exact wow. number, but do you have to worry about getting hit with boiling water? Um, you know the peak. I don't think so. I think the Park Service has been very smart about how they've constructed the um, the boardwalks around these geysers, so they don't right. put you too close. <laughs> And that's something it's important to note. We are speaking with Elizabeth Kwok Hefferin. She is the author of Fromer's Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks, our terrific guidebook to the to those national parks. Uh, the thing that drove me nuts, and I saw it in person when I was there, was somebody going off the darn boardwalk <laughs> to try and get closer to uh, what they wanted to see. I can't remember what it was. Uh, How dangerous is that? Not only for the park, but for a person. Very dangerous. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that is not recommended for a good reason. Um, A lot of the earth in these geyser basins is actually kind of just a thin crust over more boiling water. And you don't know exactly, you know, what's solid and what isn't. And that's why they've built this really nice boardwalk system for people to see the geysers. Uh, And then people have died trying to go off on their own and they fall through. Yeah, yeah. All right, we have to take a break. For anybody tuning in late, we've been speaking with Elizabeth Kwok Heffern. She is the author of Fromer's Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks. We'll be discussing more about Yellowstone after these commercial messages, so don't turn that dial. Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the phone, we have Elizabeth Kwok Hefferin. She is the author of Fromer's Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks, which is a wonderful, really pocket-sized little book that tells you everything you need to know about the parks. And one of the things you need to know is this is the place for an American safari. Uh, This is the place where you are pretty much guaranteed to see majestic creatures you won't see anywhere else. 
if somebody wants to see bison, say, where in the park should they go? Um, bison are usually pretty reliably seen in the Lamar Valley, which is in the northeast corner of the park, and also the Hayden Valley. Um, so those would be my first suggestions, although they can and do wander all over the place. And I have seen quite a few kind of along the, uh, the west entrance road and near the Madison Junction area as well. So really anywhere there's a wide open kind of savanna style ecosystem is a good spot for bison. I loved when I first went to the park, I remember we had a bison traffic jam, which I think happens a lot. There was a huge herd going across the road and we had to sit in our car for a good 10 minutes just to wait for them to pass. Not that we minded. It was it was so incredible. What are the other big gets in the park in terms of types of animals that visitors tend to get to see? Um, I think wolves are a huge draw as well. Um, that's a really exciting creature for a lot of people to see. And um, since the park reintroduced wolves back in the mid-90s, um, they've got a thriving population with several different packs. And um, Lamar Valley, again, is a great spot to see wolves. Um, it's, a, it's just a great habitat for them. And it's, they also can sometimes come close enough to the road to actually see them. Right. What about bears? Is Do people have to worry about bears in the park? Um, I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry necessarily, but yes, you should be cautious. Um, this is, you know, wild grizzly bear territory and um, grizzly bears can be dangerous. So um, you just need to take some precautions when you're out um, hiking. And that's, right. you want to you want to carry bear spray, which is a really effective deterrent if you do have a close encounter, um, which is very rare. I'd like to throw out there, but um, it does happen once in a very great while. Um, and hiking in hiking in groups is a really great idea. So, you know, the, the larger the group, the less likely a bear is going to come anywhere near you. And, you know, just being loud, talking wildly, just alerting any kind of animal to your presence is a great idea. Now, we uh, we're talking about this in August of 2020. We pre-taped this show. And so obviously people are concerned when they're traveling about social distancing. How easy is that to do in the parks right now? Um, I think if you are strategic about it, it's easy. Considering the size of Yellowstone, there's a lot of territory to explore. Um, that said, there are some kind of choke points around some of the developed areas where, you know, like Old Faithful, for example, or the Upper Geyser Basin, you tend to see more people because everyone wants to go see um, Old Faithful. Right. And um, some of some something like the canyon might also be a little bit of a choke point. But mm -hmm. um, I think... The best way to see some of those, you know, marquee sites at Yellowstone is to go really early in the morning is a lot of people don't do that. And you can right. have some of these great spots to yourself or at least with plenty of space in between you and the next party. And I would think another way to see them is in winter. People forget that Yellowstone is open in winter. What is the winter experience like there? It's totally different and it's magical. Um, yeah, the park is still open and you can have experiences like cross-country skiing among the geysers mm -hmm. or um, snowshoeing in these you know, beautifully snow-decorated forests. And the visitation is just a fraction of what you would see in July or August. Is it easier or harder to see wildlife in the winter months? 
Winter is a great time to see wildlife. Um, the snow kind of tends to con- uh, concentrate them in certain areas. And so um, I'd say especially wolves. Winter is a great time to see wolves. They'll be kind of coming out and concentrating a bit more. Now, I know that there are there have been in the past special programs for the winter months uh, where you actually go out with a ranger. Do you know if those are happening or, or is that a yeah. TBA? I think that's another nobody's quite sure how the winter is going to go. So I would check, you know, check with um, the park and check with some of the nonprofits that run those programs just to see what their their COVID season plans are. Sure. Do we need advanced reservations like you do for Yosemite at Yellowstone now to get into the park? You do not. It is open as usual. What about the facilities? Are those less involved? Um, there have been some um, some pullbacks. Yes, there are certain concessionaire activities that are not running, like the boat cruises or the the popular um, like Old West cookout. Uh-huh. Um, some of the visitor centers are closed. Some are open. Um, most of the sit down restaurants are closed, but you can still go get some grab and go options. Um, and some of the campgrounds are shut down. Some are not. Interesting. We have been speaking with Elizabeth Kwok Hefferin. She is the author, we're very proud to say, of our great guidebook, Fromer's Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for appearing on the Travel Show. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Are listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And you know, we have guests of all sorts on this show, but our main focus in life, and tell me if you think this is fair, Dad, is on the Fromer guidebooks, right? Right. And so that's something that we don't want to for you all to forget about. Uh, they are a terrific gift item. They're terrific for exploring your own backyard. We have both print books, by which I mean books that are printed on paper, as well as ebooks. And this year, to help Americans explore their own country, we came out with a series of new ebooks. Uh, they're called Easy Guides. They don't look different, but they go to different places. And because they're more concisely written, because we know it's hard to read on your phone, uh, they're slightly less expensive than our regular guides. So they're a very good value. They're to places like Rhode Island, Vermont, the Grand Canyon, the Big Island of Hawaii. We have another terrific one to Lake Mead, if you happen to be in that part of the country. Another one to Sedona and the surrounding areas around that. Uh, To the hill country of Texas. Might be a little hot still for the hill country of Texas, but in the coming months, that is one of the most spectacular road trips in the United States, because you have not only historic sites like LBJ's home and Native American sites, and you have a lot of caverns, but you also have these splendid fields of wildflowers in that part of the world. People come in the same numbers that they go to New England in fall uh, to watch the colors of the leaves change. They go and to Paul, Texas. Paul, once country. again, 
exactly how does a person who wants one of these new condensed e-books, how do they order them? Well, you'll find them on Amazon. You'll find them on barnesandnoble.com. You'll find them wherever e-books are sold. That's uh, exciting. So, yeah. And, and speaking about fall colors, our guide to Vermont is going to be key if you want to go to Vermont. And I have a soft spot in my heart for Vermont. I truly believe that is the best place in the country to go and watch the fall foliage. Um, the ebook is concisely written, but filled with every type of detail you would need. And it just came out. So it's going to be totally up to date, unlike some of the competition's guidebooks. Plus, because our guidebook writers never ever take a cent from any any company they cover whether it's a restaurant a hotel an attraction you can trust us it's we're not influencers who go wherever we're paid to go uh, these guidebooks are written by people who live in the areas they cover and who believe deeply that these are the best places to see and these are the best ways to do it and they lay it out in our guidebooks so we hope you'll visit us on amazon on barnesandnobles.com and, and pick up one of our great new ebooks all right i'm looking at the clock we have come to the end of this hour we thank you so much for listening and to those who are traveling we wish you a hearty bon voyage 